So last week we did an overview of the Gospel of Mark, and um, it was it was a real quick sketch at the major narrative themes that exist in the book of Mark. And we noticed in Mark's writing that he uses this phrase a lot, the Son of God. It's in fact that's what he opens the the book with. He opens it in verse one. He says, "In the beginning of the go- of the gospel." Uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he continues. So that, that phrase or that very first verse is kind of like, it's Mark's unofficial title for what this is. It's the, it's the subheading, if you will, for the book of Mark. It's, it's his topic sentence, his main idea, his theme that he's going to communicate again and again throughout the book. And Mark uses this phrase as a theme, and it, it this, this phrase here is something that is, you can use as an interpretive lens that hangs over the entire book, and we'll see it this morning again as um, Mark specifically writes. Mark is not a writer like some of the other gospel writers where um, he's very detailed in the, um, the genealogies and um, the, um, the Jewish backgrounds of things. Uh, in in the book of Mark, he writes and explains some of those things so that the hearers would understand that. And um, where he was writing this was from Rome, and so his his audience there was primarily a uh, a Gentile audience. But uh, you know, it was kind of like a, a mixed crowd for him. So he doesn't delve into things like the genealogies because Gentiles don't care about where you came from if you're not Jewish. They're, they're not concerned about those things. But he goes on to explain some of the information. And, but he does, curiously here, give us a couple um, Old Testament references, Jewish references, that are important to understand uh, the book here. We looked at last week um, the reason and the purpose for the writing of the book. Uh, we looked at, at the time of the writing, the, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry were starting to die off. And Mark had set out to tell the story of the real Jesus because at that time, it, those people who had witnessed the story of Jesus were able to refute any false claims. But as those people started to die off and the oral tradition only existed um, there in that time, Mark set out to write an account to declare who the real Jesus was. The book we saw was divided up into two halves, and in the first half we see Jesus performing miracles that declare his divine authority um, over creation. He displays uh, these characteristics that are mentioned in the Old Testament that are related to the promised Messiah, things like making uh, the lame to walk, making the blind to see, opening the ears of the deaf. And in the second half of Mark, we see Jesus take on the role of this promised suffering servant that Isaiah um, explains. This role that he takes on here was not understood by the people he was around um, necessarily, what that, what that role of the suffering servant um, would in fact be like. And so they didn't have a full understanding of what Jesus um, was doing. And so Mark seeks to explain that in detail here. So today we look at the Gospel of Mark and, and what he wrote concerning the real Jesus. So let's look at, we're going to cover verses 1 through 11 today and um, see what Mark has to say. He starts off in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, <clears throat> prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. 
John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark starts out uh, with that. He starts out the book with this, this first sentence. It's the theme that hangs over the entire thing. And the way that this, this passage is broken down, it breaks down into three kind of main portions that we're going to handle this morning. The first one, he it deals with the claim. It's the claim of who Jesus is, who Mark is telling the story of Jesus to be. The second, um, the second mark that he puts first there is uh, the forerunner. So we deal with the claim first, the forerunner, and then the final um, item that we deal with is the inbreaking. And we'll get to what that means. If, um, if you recall, last week we talked a little bit about um, what the gospel meant. And uh, the inbreaking has to do with that to a certain degree. So he starts off with the claim in verse 1. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He notes that it's the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus. And for Mark, the introduction of Jesus it, it is no less of, of a grand moment here than the creation of the world. And so in, in his mind, because Jesus coming on the scene is such a big deal here. Jesus being introduced into the world is such a big deal. He, he uses the words that the Bible starts off with in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and Mark here, he uses that same thing. He, he communicates right away the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses that phrase to draw the readers back to their, uh, the imagery of Genesis 1.1 and the beginning of creation. And what he's essentially saying here is, in the beginning God created, and now, in the beginning, Jesus, through his work upon the cross, will recreate that fellowship with man. Um, he goes on to note that this is a gospel. We also noted last week that the gospel here is the story of salvation in Jesus, and that the word that he used, uh, that, that is used to describe it, uh, the gospel it, it literally meant in uh, the secular world, it meant victory from the battlefield. It was used to communicate a win, um, a, a great victory that had happened in battle. And later in that time, it went on to mean, you know, it was good news that was communicated, for instance, like when an emperor was born. But in Isaiah, good news is transferred to mean um, it, it, it specifically means the inbreaking of God's final saving act when peace, good news, and release from oppression will be showered upon God's people. That word in Isaiah came to be known as God's inbreaking into humanity in his final saving act. And so the way that Mark uses this, he's using this word that speaks vivid imagery to Jesus coming or or. At this time, you know, they weren't exactly sure who uh, Jesus was, but Mark tells us in the first verse who he is. He says he's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes that claim that not only is Jesus this long-expected 
Messiah, the Christ, but he also points out that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, the way that he handles these, these claims, he, he first makes his statement, and then he begins to build his argument. He builds his case here by, by doing two things. And, and the, the primary idea of what he's doing is he's trying to, to tie Jesus as deeply as possible into the history of the Jews. So he starts off in verse 2 laying this case. It says in verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he starts off with this, this quotation from Isaiah. The phrase that he opens up there with is uh, the phrase, it is written. It's, a, it's an authoritative introduction. And in the Greek and Roman sense, that phrase was used in introductions to law or uh, carrying a declaration of, of legal force there. And so he's making, he's, he's not you're just saying like, I've written it down. He's saying like, this is important. Like you need to understand the force that comes and authority that comes with this. And so what he does in doing that, um, this, this, this phrase was tied back to the Old Testament as well. He quotes Isaiah, and it was used to designate in, to the Hebrews the authority of God. He starts off making this statement, and then he does two things here. He roots the Messiah, this Christ figure, deep into the Old Testament, and then he establishes that Jesus is God. And he actually uses a combo of verses here in the passage. He, in, in verses uh, 1, it's 1 through 3 is what, what he deals with. He cites a couple um, different passages. The first one um, that he cites here is Malachi 3.1. I'll read it for you. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He, he also quotes from Isaiah 43. He says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, the desert, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So what, what Mark is seeking to do here is he takes these two Old Testament passages and, and they're pertaining with a messenger and God. So the messenger uh, in, the, in these passages is preparing the way for God. And he takes these two um, passages and he uses them as a parallel to show that that is who John is. And in and, and declaring that John is the messenger, he also likens Jesus to being deity. He says that Jesus is God. If John is the fulfillment of these passages in Isaiah and in Malachi, what he's in fact saying is that Jesus is God. It's interesting to note that Mark points out here in, in verse 3 the, the, the way that he speaks about it. He says there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. This figure, this messenger figure, it, they had been, the people had been expectant of a forerunner, someone who would come before God's final saving act. They knew that, that God would break in um, through the prophecies over time, However, there was an expectancy that this prophet would come um, to the people first. And it's brilliant the way that he communicates this by, commu by quoting Isaiah's prophetic passage here. He, he says that John is this voice, and because Mark equates John with being this person, that the Lord 
in, in, that is mentioned in Isaiah and Malachi is in fact Jesus. He's making a claim that, that would be unbelievable because up until uh, this point, it wasn't like a popularly understood thing that the Messiah would also be God. He's, he's making this connection for the people, but at the time here of the writing, the people don't know this. The people don't know, and, and this is a part of that thing that we talked about last week, the messianic secret motif, where in the, in the passage, in, in the story of Mark, from the very beginning, we know that Jesus is God, but the people don't know, and he uses that silence to reveal to the reader that Jesus's identity as we see the things that Jesus says and does. So this baptizer, um, John, he is not simply the herald of the Messiah, but of God himself appearing in Jesus. And he speaks um, about John in uh, verse 4, read with me. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with locusts, with, cam with camel's hair, and wore a belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Now we get to John, and John is this forerunner of Christ, and Mark gives us specific details regarding John that sound a little bit weird. You know, it's like this guy, he lives where nobody else lives. He's wearing, you know, a camel hair vest, and he's eating bugs. You know, like, I was thinking about it as I was actually thinking about this passage. I was like, that sounds really weird everywhere except for, like, on Telegraph. Like, you would see that on Telegraph. If you were on Telegraph, you'd be like, that's normal. Like, there are people... <laughs> just wearing camel's hair stuff and eating bugs. Like, that would be, like, the one place. I was like, I don't know if, like, people identify that this being weird because, like, if you walk through there, some stuff is really weird. But the way that, the, the thing that, that Mark is seeking to communicate here, he does, a, he, there's a lot of imagery here that speaks a lot to the people. Mark notes that John is in the wilderness. It's a strange place to be, if you want to preach, go where nobody's at. You know, it's like John is this great prophetic preacher and he's out in the middle of nowhere. And to us, that's, that sounds, you know, that sounds a little bit weird, but we don't have the, the history that the readers of this have. The wilderness to the Jews meant something. What Mark is doing here is he's giving us contextual clues to help us understand the narrative in the story here. The context surrounding the book of Mark is huge if we looked at, you know, we looked at that last week. But for instance, um, he, he's giving them a word that would bring to mind just a ton of understanding and imagery. If I went, um, if I went out from here uh, down to Southern California, where I'm originally from, and I told people that I lived in Berkeley, the word Berkeley carries a lot of, of imagery with it. If you are not from this area and you don't necessarily experience it in the way that we do in a, in a daily life, the word Berkeley carries a lot of imagery surrounding it. For instance, 
if I told, if I said the word, you know, told people I lived in Berkeley, what immediately comes to mind for the majority of people is the free speech movement of the 1960s. They, in their minds, they're thinking, they hear the word Berkeley and they immediately envision students with arms linked on sprawl, just, you know, in, with black and white images and cops and, you know, it's just all of those things flash through your mind. You know, you, you think of, of People's Park and, and, and all the things that went down there. Those, are th- those words are synonymous with Berkeley. It's a contextual clue to where we're at. And so John does the same thing here with the wilderness. The wilderness meant something to, to the Jews, and he was bringing this to their mind. In the history of Israel, the wilderness was a place uh, that, that was marked as a place of beginnings. The wilderness was the place where, where the people met God. If, if you look at the book of Exodus, after their time in Egypt, uh, a place that is representative of, uh, of sin or of bondage, they go out from there into the wilderness. Into the wilderness, they, they went to meet God at Mount Sinai, and there they received the law. In the wilderness, they saw God provide for their daily needs. In the wilderness, in they, um, God demonstrated his love for them and sought to win them back in the, in the book of Jeremiah and Hosea. And for the people, the wilderness began to become known as a staging ground for this second exodus. It was, it was a designated place where God would prepare the way for his people. And so when he said the wilderness, this communicated a lot of information to these people. They knew that this was a staging ground for God's inbreaking. So John wasn't just purposefully, you know, or he wasn't just aimlessly out in the wilderness. He was there to make a point. He was out in the middle of nowhere because it communicated to God's people something. Furthermore, his, his attire, he was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He had weird clothes but this also gave context. He, he purposefully dressed this way to identify with the prophet Elijah. If you look at 2 Kings 1.8, it says this regarding Elijah. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with belt and leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. John is making uh, this, this parallel to Elijah. John was in the wilderness like Elijah was often in the wilderness. They were actually in the same regions in Israel's history. John, Elijah wore this garment of hair and a leather belt. John wore that hair, uh, garment of hair and leather belt. Because Elijah was an Old Testament uh, prophet that was very powerful, and he was associated with the wilderness and also with the Jordan River, where John is baptizing these people. But in Israel's history, Elijah became known as someone who would, offer, who would usher in the kingdom of God. If you recall, Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. And so it was a popular thought amongst the people that Elijah would be the one to come and usher in the kingdom of God. John's attire was also uh, reminiscent of their early identity, it's, it's, a, it's another throwback to the beginning. He wore animal skins just as God 
had made animal skins for Adam and Eve when they sinned. It's, it's, an, it's another uh, mark to help them remember the Garden of Eden and show them, uh, the, the people, their separation from God because of, of their sin. What Mark is doing here is he's again rooting this story in the larger context of, uh, of redemptive narrative of the Bible. He takes this story and puts it in to show you exactly what it is that he's claiming regarding Jesus. So John identifies himself with Elijah to show that he's doing the work of God as the voice of, in the wilderness. He's preparing the way uh, for the Lord in the way that, uh, that he might usher in the kingdom of God. And so the imagery that Mark uses here uh, helps the people that are reading recall the promises of God. His attire and, and the setting point out that, that this is a staging ground for the inbreaking of God, the promised Messiah, and John is preparing the way here for Christ. And so he goes on in verse 5, And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's, there's masses of people who were going out to the wilderness to meet with God. This place that was a staging ground, this place that um, was a place of repentance, the wilderness just was, was likened to a place of repentance in Israel's history. And because it was likened to a place of repentance, it was also a place of God's grace. Because in the, in, in the desert, everything dies, and you're only sustained by God. In the desert, the people of Israel were wandering around for 40 years, and God was their provider. He provided heat at night and, and shade during the day. He provided food for them. He provided water. He was their provider at that time, and they had total reliance on God out in the wilderness. John summons the people here to come out to him to be baptized away from their routines, away from the city, away from the, their, the things that would make them comfortable, calling them out to a place of, of repentance here. He's careful to note in, in this passage that they all went down confessing their sins. He uses the word all there. He's very specific in noting who it was. He's making this to make a point that it was both Jew and Gentile alike who were, who were going out confessing their sins. They were all feeling the need uh, for repentance as the, as the Lord was working there. Everyone was headed out to the wilderness. And then John's message in verse 4, look with me. This is what he speaks. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His message, it was, a, it was a twofold message here. It was one of baptism and one of repentance. These two things, they went hand in hand and they were tied together in John's ministry. If you look at, at repentance there, the Greek word that, that he uses there, it meant a change of mind to alter one's understanding and thus a change of action. And so it wasn't just a change of one's mind, but action was produced out of, out of this, uh, this change. In the Hebrew context, repentance meant this. It meant a wholehearted return to God and a turning away from sin. And so not only does John preach that you must repent, and, but that it goes together with baptism. It is that identifying with the change. The word baptism simply means to dip fully or to plunge or to immerse. Um, and John includes everyone in his call to bapt baptism. 
as, he call, as all the people came out to him, he includes everyone. It's interesting that, that John does that because in that culture, and if you look at the, the laws in the Old Testament, Jews were never baptized. There's never, the, the, there's never really like a case where Jews are baptized. The people who were baptized um, were, were converts. They were proselytes, people who, uh, who weren't Jews to start with. They were baptized into the faith. Now, Jews had, um, had ritual washings. Uh, they, they had these different washings that they, they did, but they were never really considered unclean. And their, their washings were mostly like hand washings. It was, you know, um, just something where... Like, like we would do, or where they go to the sink and they wash up. And there's different things. If you look at the Old Testament, you can kind of see those things. But what John was communicating here in his call to all was not so much that um, he, what he really wanted to communicate was that it didn't really matter who you were. It didn't matter if you, had, if you were a, a righteous person or you were a righteous Jew or you were a notorious sinner, everyone needed to be baptized. His call was to all people. It was a totally unnatural thing. It, it was something that people wouldn't really understand or, or, or they wouldn't identify with right away. He's making a point to, to show that your lineage and your status, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs to repent. Repentance and baptism um, linked in his, in his ministry, they were, they were to lay claim to all of a person's life. And so it wasn't to be, a, to be something that would be compartmentalized. The entirety of a person, regardless of their background, regardless of their status, regardless of their lineage, um, was baptized. And it's interesting the way that, um, that John does this is because if you look at the ritual washings, the, the, the things that the people were familiar with were washings or bathings where they would, they would wash themselves. And there's other instances where, uh, you know, you would go and dip yourself in the water. But in John's, John's baptism here, he makes a point to say that you can't, baptize yourself. It has to be done by the hands of another. This is something that they weren't also used to. It, it forced them to think about this. He's communicating uh, this here specifically, and what, what he's seeking to point out is that you cannot save yourself. You can't do it to yourself. This has to be done by another. John's job was to be the forerunner. His baptism was to signify spiritual renewal. And so everything that he did was to point to Jesus. It was to prepare the way of the Lord. Back in, uh, in those times, what that meant to prepare the way of the Lord, it was, it was a phrase that would, that would happen uh, within kingdoms. When a king was going to go out, there would be someone who would go before him, a forerunner, and who would clear the roads, who would prepare it so that the king could come through and make it to his destination. And so this is what John is doing. He's clearing the way and making it so that people might see that Jesus is Messiah and he is God. Verse 7 and 8 um, 
it says that he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to loose. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry points to Jesus, and he knows his place here. And he uses this cultural analogy to communicate uh, the importance of Christ. In the Babylonian Talmud, it's, it, there's a, a, this phrase is kind of where it comes from. It had a, um, a cultural mandate here. It says that all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher with the exception of undoing his shoes. So you were commanded to, to do anything except for untie someone's shoes. John is saying, although I'm not obligated to do that, I'm not even worthy to do that. He's putting himself so far below Jesus um, that it communicates that he, he understands his role here. So John baptizes um, with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. His declaration here that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit is furthermore uh, this claim to divinity. It, it's, it's something that he uses as an Old Testament reference as well, because in the Old Testament, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, that was something that belonged exclusively to God. So for John to say that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit is to identify him with, wait, the only pe person who can give the Holy Spirit is God. Is to make it clear to the people who Jesus is. And now we come to verse 9. And this is, this is the, the pinnacle, what, what John has been, has been waiting for and what Mark has been waiting to communicate to us. It, this is the first time that we see Jesus on the scene in the book. He describes the baptism of Jesus in just 53 words. It's, it's the shortest uh, account of the baptism event here, but they're, they're full of meaning. He says in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and a dove descending, and, and, a, and the Spirit, excuse me, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the first time that Jesus' name is mentioned here. He's called Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. It's a region that was unimportant, and even to the people there, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Later in the Gospels, Nazareth is even scoffed at. Jesus is from like a no-name town. You know, it's mentioned when they're talking about Jesus, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the people are like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, the place is just a dump. Like, you would not expect anything good to come out of there. But John here, he, he points out where Jesus is from, and then the way that he does this, Jesus showing up on the scene, he communicates to us Jesus' purpose here in, uh, in verses 9 through 11 by his literary technique. If you look at verse 9, it's a parallel to verse 5. Mark writes this as a parallel. It's um, Jesus here is identifying with, with uh, Israel in verse 5 and in verse 9. Look with me at, at verse 5. He says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and, all, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And then if you look down at verse 9, it says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
what he's doing in communicating these two things separately is he's, he's tying them together. The people went down confessing their sins, and Jesus went down. Jesus is identifying with Israel in this place. Jesus didn't have to, to repent of sins. If you notice, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything regarding that. The people went down confessing, but Jesus didn't. He went down to identify with Israel. And, and, and when you read it, like, and, you know, you kind of like wonder, like, well, why was Jesus baptized? Like, he didn't, he didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to um, repent of sin. But what he's doing here is he's showing, he's identifying with, with Israel, and he's showing solidarity with them. And his baptism is also one that points, uh, points back to the beginning, creation again, and forward to his mission. The people went down confessing their sins to the Jordan, but Jesus was going down to start the ministry of dying for their sins. John, uh, or Mark uses these as a contrast. This was a, it was a symbolic thing that was happening here. The one who had no sin went into the Jordan, the place where the people were being baptized as they went down and came up clean, leaving their sin in the river. Jesus went into their sin to be baptized and take on all of their sin. This is what John, uh, John is doing here in baptizing people. And as Mark writes, he's communicating that Jesus is identifying with the people here. He's showing that he will be their savior. And so regarding Jesus' baptism, he just speaks like very quickly. There's not a lot around it. It, it just says very specifically, uh, when he came up out of the water, right away, um, three things happened. When Jesus comes up, he experiences three things, and these three things are, are things that in the Jewish tradition signified the inauguration of God's kingdom. The first thing um, was that the heavens opened, the spirit descended, number two, and the, a heavenly voice speaks. Mark's very specific in noting, noting that only Jesus uh, was the one who was aware of these things. This is a part of that messianic secret motif where the reader knows, but the people who are present do not know. Look at verse 10. He says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He saw the heavens uh, torn open. This is super significant here. This is, one of the, this is one of the few places where Mark uses this word. Uh, he uses a word that no other gospel writer uses regarding this event. It's a word that speaks of tearing a hole in the heavens. Mark is indicating that this event here is, an, is a direct response to Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64. Because in Isaiah, it was the prophecy of the suffering servant who would come and suffer on behalf of the people. It, Isaiah 64.1 says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah prays that God would open a hole, that he would tear a hole, and that he would come down in bodily form. This is the same word here that Mark, uh, that Mark is using to communicate here, that, that tearing. None of the other gospel writers use it, but Mark is indicating here that this is the inbreaking of God into humanity. This, this, this tearing is not so much an indication that man now has access to God, but that God has come 
as a man to begin this final saving act. This plan of salvation is continuing, and he is this indeed the suffering servant. Mark sets this, remember, against, against the larger narrative of the Bible, because the whole purpose of this of these different benchmarks that we see, these contextual clues like in Isaiah, is to show that Jesus is not an afterthought. He is the long-promised and awaited Son of God all the way back to the the first time that the gospel is proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, that's where this whole thing started, the problems uh, with between God and man. There was broken fellowship there in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. In the Garden of Eden, it was a place where where God and man walked together. Before man had sinned, they walked in the cool of the day. But when man disobeyed God, when he uh, sinned, he could no longer be in the presence of God because God is holy. And so man had to be separated from God. Man had to be put out, and so God put a cherubim at the entrance to the garden to guard the tree of life. He made a point to to put something that separated so that man could not enter back into the garden to keep uh, him away from God. Throughout Israel's history, there were always measures in place to keep man from coming to God. This is something that's been long experienced because God is holy and man's sin could not be in God's presence. If you look at Exodus 19, um, when they went to go and meet with, with God at the mountain, he was going to come and meet the people. They were told not to come near the mountain because that's where God was. You know, he told them, like, if you come near, like, you'll be killed. Don't touch the mountain. Don't come near it. There were, there were things that were put in place. Even in the temple, uh, th- this was the central place where the Jews could worship God, their God. There were still things that were put in place. It was divided. It was in sections. You can read about it in Second Chronicles, but it went something like this. Going from like the outer to the inner, there was a Gentile court. And then separating the, the, the Gentiles was the court of women. And then the court of Israelites, where only Jewish men could go. And then the court of priests. And then within the court of priests, then there was the actual temple. And each of these things kept people from getting closer and closer and closer to the center where God was. And within the, within the temple, there was the different sections of the temple. And, it, you know, there was the holy place. And then there was the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And where God's presence dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant. But separating the holy place and the holy of holies was a veil. This, this veil, um, that it was a physical separation. That This was the, the final physical separation between man and God. And even with that separation, only one time a year could man go inside of that veil. On the Day of Atonement, one man could go inside there to experience... Uh, a relationship with God through the work of atoning for the people. This word here that he uses for, for veil in, in that text, it literally means curtain. It's a curtain. And, and if you look at how it was made, it was, it was actually probably a, it was, I think it was like something like 
18 inches thick or something crazy. It was like a massive sort of thing. But this word curtain, it was derived from another word um, that literally means harshness, severity, cruelty. It's to show that there is, it's not a friendly separation. It's not a decorative separation. That's something that if you try to come past the separation, harshness, cruelty, that will happen. Not because God is harsh and cruel, but because God is holy and man had sinned. This same veil God instructed uh, them to design in Exodus. If you look at Exodus 26 regarding it, it says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twilled linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So that same place where we see in Genesis where the cherubim guarded the man from God, here again the cherubim stand guard. They're embroidered into this veil. And later in Mark, he chooses his words very carefully regarding the inbreaking of God. Again, he's drawing parallels. Because remember, Mark is the only one that uses this word, this, this inbreaking, this this thing where it's regarding uh, the answer to Isaiah's prayer that God would tear a hole in the heavens and come down, that he would rip that open, that same word is used in Mark 15. It's the only other time that it's used. He says in Mark 15, 37, at the end of the book, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. He uses that same word to communicate the tearing. That separation has been broken. And at this final instance, just as we looked at last week, right after that, the next phrase, we see who did that. In verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The curtain is torn, it's ripped in two, and then the claim again. This is the Son of God. This is the one who has done this. He has fulfilled that prophecy. He came to fulfill that mission, and he he was able to accomplish that for you and for I. He's very clear that, Mark is very clear in making this claim that God is making a plan and fulfilling this plan of salvation for man. He goes on, he says that the Spirit of God descended. The Spirit was pictured as a dove. It was very rare to readers but uh, it, it, of the Old Testament, but it was mentioned um, one time specifically. It recalled back to the beginning again, as we looked at. In Genesis 1-2, it talks about the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew verb there means to flutter. And to this this portion was often translated this way the spirit of god fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove and god spoke let there be light so the so again mark with these three instances where the heavens are torn open there's the the spirit descends like a dove he's calling us back to this i remembering of the beginning god is recreating this relationship he is doing this work again here, and at this, in this instance, we see the same three things. We see God the Father, we see the Son, you know, there, um, and we also see the Holy Spirit. The same three, uh, the triune God who was present at creation, is present again here. 
Mark is calling us back to uh, that, same, uh, that same event so that the readers might understand. And then lastly, um, a heavenly voice speaks. He has this divine confession, and in it we find the more, uh, more Old Testament imagery. He finishes uh, speaking. He says, you are my son. Oh, where did I lost it. There you go. He says, um, and he says it specifically to Jesus. He doesn't say it, you know, he, it's not audible to everybody. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He's talking to him specifically. What he's doing, God is speaking here, but this is reminiscent of Isaiah 49.3, where it says, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This confession that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promised suffering servant, and in Jesus, God will be glorified. Colossians 1.19 further um, identifies uh, this idea of Jesus being God. He says in uh, Colossians 1.19, Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the second time um, that we see that claim that Jesus is the Son of God. God himself specifically tells Jesus who he is. And so as we consider that, as we, as we see the, the story that Mark is telling, we need to understand who Jesus is in this proper account. Jesus is, is, needs to be seen best at the cross. That is, how, is, is what Mark is trying to communicate to us. Not to let us recast Jesus as you or as I like to see him, but as the cross reveals who he is and his purpose. And today, our message is the same as John's. It's one of repentance. He didn't come uh, just to, to teach us and tell us good things, but he came to save us. And there's only one proper response to understanding who Jesus is. It's to worship. If you, if you know and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in response to that, there must be action. We must worship. And so that's what we're going to do now together. We're going to spend time um, with a couple more songs uh, singing and praising the Lord.